Hey, Reveal listeners, if you've been listening to American Rehab, you don't need me to tell you about the importance of great investigative journalism. It really helps us when our listeners rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It's so easy to do, and it helps others find our show. So we've got a bonus for the next 200 people who review us, Reveal Tote Bags. Like our t-shirts, they're simple and elegant, dark blue with the word facts written across the front in bold type. So here's what you got to do. Text the word REVIEW to 474747, and we'll give you instructions on how to get one while supplies last. Again, text the word REVIEW to 474747. You can text STOP at any time, and standard rates apply. And when you leave the review, if you want to tell them that Al Ledson is your all-time favorite host, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to be mad at that. Thank you so much for your review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a huge difference. Hey, folks, this is Al Letson, And before we get started, I wanted to tell you about something we're doing on today's show that will give you something extra while you're listening. That's right. Extra Al Letson just for you. So here's how it works. During the show... I'll give you shout-outs so you can text us to see some stuff you're hearing about. It might be photos of the people in the story or a link to a video. You get the idea. Okay, let's try it out. Get your phone out. I'll wait. Waiting for it. Waiting for it. And here we go. Text the word VIDEO to this number. 202-873-8325. Again, that's VIDEO. Text it to 202-873-8325. 8325. Once you do that, you'll see a video with yours truly. It kind of went viral and captures a scene that we talk about throughout the show. You don't want to miss it. Seriously, that's video 202-873-8325. From the Center for Investigative Reporting in PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. A few weeks ago, I was covering protests in downtown Berkeley. Thousands of people marching through the streets to demonstrate against a planned right-wing rally. It was a beautiful day. The sky was clear. Kids with signs walked next to their parents. Protesters danced and sang on an impromptu stage. It felt like a typical Berkeley protest. Pretty peaceful. Until it wasn't. Joey! I was following a crowd of people who were yelling at some right-wing activists and chasing them away. Now, out of the corner of my eye, I saw a middle-aged man with a video camera being attacked. The first, like, the first blow hit me on the head, and then it clicked. It's like, oh, no, this is not going to be good. And then I remember getting hit a couple more times in the head and, like, people forcing me down. And then it was like, I just remember feeling the impact. Five people dressed in black with masks on their faces brutally beat the man to the ground. They kicked, punched, and hit him with poles while he lay there in the fetal position. I realized that I was in serious trouble, but I think even as they were, as they were pummeling me and I was going down, like it was going through my head, it's like, I can't believe, I can't believe this is actually happening to me. I mean, I knew, I knew there was a risk. All of this happened so quickly. I didn't know who he was, what he'd done, or why they jumped him. But in that moment, I thought, they're going to kill him. Yeah, I, I was feeling everything, and I thought, this, you know, this is it. I'm going to die. It's like they don't seem to be wanting to let up and nobody's around. So, and then I, like, I think I said a quick prayer and I thought, I hope this is quick because this really hurts. I don't want this to go on another five minutes. When I saw what was happening, I did something kind of crazy. I didn't really think about it. I just reacted. I ran over to help him. I pushed someone out of the way and dropped on top of the man, shielding him with my body. Time seemed to slow in that moment. I braced myself for a beating that never came. 
Others came over to break up the fight. The mob moved on. After that, I don't remember what happened, but other reporters were rolling video and the scene of me, a black journalist, protecting a white right-wing activist went viral. When it was over, I was sitting on the curb of the street, adrenaline pumping through my blood, fog from a smoke grenade clouding my eyes, a crowd moving around me, and I wondered, how do we get here? Today, we're going to peel back the layers and find out why all these people converged at that one moment, at one rally, at one fight in Berkeley, and see how it connects to protests all over America. We're going to do it through the people who were involved in that fight, from the man who planned a right-wing rally that weekend. I'm pretty happy about the way the weekend went. It was pretty successful in terms of our goals. To the man I protected from that attack. And I just, I couldn't believe it. You know, I, you didn't know who I was. You know, for all I knew, you might have figured I was a, a Nazi. To one of the guys in the crew that carried out the attack, he tells me that beatdown was anything but random. Number one, his name is Keith Campbell, the man that you jumped on and saved. And he owes you a lot. I mean, he should be giving, paying you a lot of money because uh, he got off with a lot less than he deserves. What does he mean by that? I'm going to talk to him in a minute, but first, I wanted to bring in Reveal's Will Carlos, who's been reporting on the rise of right-wing groups and the anti-fascist or Antifa movement that has emerged to confront them. And Will, let's start with the man who said that he helped plan the beating at the rally. He says he's a member of Antifa, and you'd actually been interviewing him for weeks before the rally. So tell me, who is he? Well, we don't really know exactly who he is. He won't give us his name. We only know him by Dominic, but he's a an activist from the Bay Area. He lives in Oakland. Uh, he says he's been fighting Nazis for 20 years. He used to be in a group called the Anti-Racist Action. Uh, he identifies as an anarchist, and he's essentially a member of the militant wing of the Bay Area Antifa, which has been building up over the last year or so. There's been a lot of talk about Antifa recently in the media. President Trump has called them out. Now, that's quite a change for a small band of anarchists. That's right. And what we've seen is is Antifa really grow over, over the last year or so. But this is a movement that stretches right the way back to the 1920s and 1930s in Europe, and that largely arrived in the US in about the sort of late 1980s. And that's actually where Dominic got his start. Um, they, they started by kind of outing neo-Nazis, mainly in the punk music scene, uh, also going to clubs, music clubs, where, where racist bands wanted to play and, and expose them to them. What this group has kind of turned into these days is a collection of, uh, most of them are anarchists, and they're all about basically shutting down hate speech. Their idea is that hate speech is not free speech. And so if people want to come and be racist and say racist things and hurtful things, then they see their role as kind of going in and shutting those people down and not letting them into their community. I think for a long time, more mainstream progressives kept people like Dominic at arm's length. But as you and I saw at the Berkeley rally, something has definitely changed. Yeah, you're right. I think I think the violence at the white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, and remember that was just two weeks earlier, and especially the death of Heather Heyer, that had really changed the view towards Antifa. And that was most evident, I think, in the moment in Berkeley when, when the the more militant protesters joined the main crowd. So you had this very diverse crowd of protesters from young people to, to older people, sort of more moderate groups. And then I actually got a message from Dominic and he says, we're coming around the corner and here they come. And there's about 200 of them marching in what they call a black block formation, which is these people dressed head to toe in black, marching in a very tight unit, banging on their shields. And the main protesters were not scared of these guys. They were welcoming. They high-fived them. They were shouting, you know, give it up for the black bloc. Like, here come these people. And the idea was that they were there to protect them, to provide security. This is a coordinated thing, folks. So just hang with us. We are unified in our politics of anti-fascism confronting white supremacy. Welcome, black bloc. It turns out that Dominic and his crew weren't just there to provide defense. They also planned to go on the offensive. They had a hit list of several right-wing activists. 
We have a copy of that hit list. It's a color flyer with the headline, Know You're Nazi. To check it out, text hit list to that number we gave you before. In case you missed it, it's 202-873-8325. If any of those people showed up, Dominic was prepared to go after them. A couple days after the rally, we asked Dominic to come into the studio. He showed up, and I have to admit, he's a pretty intimidating dude. He's in great shape. His body is built like a boxer. And he eats like one, too. Yeah, hard-boiled eggs, tuna fish, crackers, protein bars, oranges, muscle milk. I'd say that's a workout (laughs) diet. (laughs) As much protein as I can get. Dominic says they extricated three people the day of the protest, meaning they physically removed them. He was still pretty mad at me for stepping in and protecting Keith Campbell. He says they were targeting Keith for a reason. Really, I felt like you were standing in the way of a community response. They came for a fight. The community, through their representatives and all these organizations, mandated us to be the security for that and to protect them, to be the first line of defense and also to extricate those that would be wish to do them harm or to cause a scene or to, to rile them up. There was no regrets. We have no regrets. The only regret I have is that I didn't pull you off so we could finish on him. And, and I say that in, in the hopes that when he gets up, if whatever damage it is or if he has to go to the hospital, that maybe he'll reevaluate what he's dedicated his life to as a 50-some-year-old man. Maybe he'll say, is this worth it to me, this movement? That Am I willing to give uh, my, my bones and my life to a movement that, that these people are calling a fascist movement? I'm willing to give my life for the anti-fascist movement. Is he willing to give his for the fascist one? I was at the rally. And I would say, like, there were several um, Trump supporters here and there. But you're talking about, like, three individuals. So it's like 200 of you against three. That seems like really unequal odds. The reason why the violence was only those three incidents was because there was overwhelming numbers. If there were overwhelming numbers in Charlottesville, maybe Heather Hyde would still be alive today. We don't know. So the question that I have for you is, what does defense mean to you? Because... Defense, to me, means that you are standing in the perimeter and you are protecting people behind you. But if a guy is there with a camera and he doesn't have a weapon, uh, running after and chasing him seems like offense to me. Sure, absolutely. It's a, it's a, it, when we say community self-defense, it's not uh, just when the KKK rides into town with torches. That's when we organize and come together to respond. We respond beforehand and we organize beforehand. So that means people that are known fascists are known to um, attack us or, or organize these fascist rallies that have led to people being murdered. But the point is that you've got people in that movement or on the periphery that are disaffected, uh, white men or don't have a job and, and need someone to blame, just like people needed someone to blame in the 30s in Germany. So I'm saying uh, if this man, specifically Keith Campbell, now goes and kills someone, that, that you have to live with that. I don't have to live with that because I, I'm not the person behind him pulling the gun. You're saying that, like, your defensive stance also includes offense because— it would have to be if that guy did not have a weapon, was not coming to attack you, all he was using was words, and you're saying that the way you defend your community is you go after and you get him because the path that he's taking could lead towards violence in the future or the path that he's taking has had violence in the past, but either way, you feel like your defensive stance is to go out and get him if he's in your vicinity. Uh, I'm saying we use his own words directly, which uh, he refers to, I want to whip their ass. He references knives. He openly communicates with But he didn't have any of that. So, so, uh, so we're going to wait for him to have it? I don't know. Do that's it? the question I'm asking you. So I'm saying no. I'm saying, so I'm saying we break his legs now so that then maybe he'll consider the next time if it's worth it to him. Do you think that that deterrence is actually going to stop them, though? No. No, I don't. I think what's going to stop them is what really happened and what should be the high headlines of all the newspapers was that such a broad coalition of people came out to stand up against white supremacy and say that in this day and age, we stand up to, to, to people that, that espouse those ideologies. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. You just said that you don't think that the deterrence is actually going to work. What's going to work is people gathering together. Right. So if that is what's working, then how is the violence working? Because you're saying that, like, you're going to break his legs. 
uh, hoping that it's a deterrent. But then when I asked you, you said, no, that's not the deterrent. The people are the deterrent. So, like, if if the violence isn't the actual deterrence, but the people is, why not concentrate on peacefully gathering everybody together and showing that strength? Yeah, that's true. I should have made it more clear. So, so, so violence is absolutely the last line of defense. That's the last thing that we ever want to do. And that's what I've been trying to say is that the organizing has been done and gone into that. That coalition building, that is the nonviolence. The fact that we had to extricate three people, that's just one aspect of what's more important, which was the coalition and these groups that came together that haven't been able to work together for years. Do you feel like your movement is a revolution? Uh, I'm a revolutionary, and uh, I believe in a, a, we absolutely need a revolutionary movement to actually get rid of institutional racism. At its root, a revolution and a revolutionary is uh, a dream for what's possible, right? Like you, mm-hmm. you have a dream, you have an idea. Like what is your dream? That um, we have a society that is communal, that uh, there's a free association, that is non-hierarchical, that uh, um, doesn't have classes, that um, doesn't have uh, one class of people lording over another, that um, isn't um, discriminatory based on sexual orientation or color or any of those other things. So uh, all that peace and hippie crap uh, of uh, egalitarianism in uh, communal, non-hierarchical structures. And you think that peace and hippie crap is going to happen through violence? Mm, No, I think that's a component of a winning strategy. The winning strategy is the coalition, and that's what we built. Um, And that's our strategy. Um, Those that don't agree with it don't have to participate. And if the movement's really going to crush this new fascist era, it's going to be done by the coalition that was created. It's going to happen from the community building and recognizing that we're not just crazy anarchists that want to do property destruction or wanton violence or just a mob mentality just to beat people up. Keith Campbell was targeted. Those people were targeted. And what I saw when I saw him is I I saw that image of that car plowing through those people. When I saw Keith Campbell that day, all I could think of was that car plowing into those people in Charlottesville. Again, that was Dominic. He's a member of Antifa. He won't share his name with us, not because he's ashamed of what he believes in, but because he doesn't want to get arrested. And he wasn't the only one at the rally thinking about Charlottesville. I think for many of us, it was a heightened sense that, wow, these folks are very serious about causing harm. Mike McBride is a pastor at the Way Church in Berkeley. He spoke at the rally from the back of a flatbed truck. He says on that day, social media was buzzing with rants from white supremacists threatening violence. So he told his parishioners to be on guard. We told them you cannot walk through your own city by yourself at all today. Because online there were people that were saying they were coming to stab and hurt people. Pastor Mike showed us a video he found on Twitter. Three 20-something white guys are driving around downtown Berkeley. It's just after the rally, and they're furious that their side got crushed. All I could think of was there needs to be a fucking war, well, we just, and these people need to be fucking destroyed. We need to form militias, guys. Get your guns. Days like these make me so sympathetic to that guy who drove a Dodge truck in that crowd. It's kind of hard to make out, but one of the guys is expressing sympathy for James Fields. The man, police say, drove a car into protesters in Charlottesville, killing Heather Heyer. We confirmed the video is real, and the guys in it were at the rally. Now, Pastor Mike says it's that kind of rhetoric that's getting people to rally around Antifa. He says in the past that he was uncomfortable with Antifa's tactics, like trashing store windows and attacking police. But it's different when white supremacists are coming into your neighborhood, and you don't trust that the cops will protect you. We literally have 200 years of organized white supremacists (laughs) who have done harm to our communities, and folks don't feel like their public presence requires some surveillance or tracking or following these people. We have some great photos from the Berkeley protests. They show how things went from peaceful to violent. To see them, text RALLY to that same number. So we saw where Antifa and their supporters are coming from. But what about their right-wing opponents? When we come back, 
we'll hear from the people who organized the rally in Charlottesville. Honestly, like going up to like MSNBC and then them interviewing you and you saying, yeah, I actually think that we should kill every non-white on the planet, even if it's your true belief. That's not the objective of this rally. That's next on Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. Reveal is brought to you by the University of Virginia and the Sacred and Profane podcast. We often hear it's not polite to bring up religion, but we lose so much when we don't talk about religion. Sacred and Profane is a podcast that isn't afraid to tackle religion. Next up, the long-standing problem of discriminatory policing against religious and racial minorities in France. Sacred and Profane is produced by the Religion, Race, and Democracy Lab at the University of Virginia. Catch season two wherever you listen to podcasts. Support for Reveal comes from Blinds.com. Transforming your home into even more of a sanctuary is easy and affordable with Blinds.com. They make it simple to shop top-quality blinds, shades, and interior shutters from home with easy online ordering and free shipping. Blinds.com has helped millions of homeowners through the process, and they guarantee the perfect fit whether you DIY or have them install everything for you. Go right now and see how much you can save at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. We started today's show looking at a single protest in the Bay Area because it's a microcosm of ideological clashes happening around the country. What's helping bring these people together is social media, Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, and other platforms. Now, in the days before the white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, this is what you could hear on Discord. We're going to have all white people. We're going to have Oath Keepers. Uh, we're going to have, you know, tons of different types of people, um, and all, every source of flavor of all right. It's an online platform originally created for gamers to talk and text with each other. Unite the Right organizers planned Charlottesville on Discord. Reveals Aaron Sankin got copies of the audio and text files from those online sessions from a media outlet called Unicorn Riot. On Discord, there was a server called Charlottesville 2.0, which was used by the organizers and participants in the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville to communicate. So from what you saw, what would you say the goals of the rally's organizers were? In those logs, there was the audio of a conference call on the platform that was hosted by uh, a gentleman named Eli Mosley. Mosley played a lead role in organizing this event and was recently named as the new leader of a fairly prominent white nationalist group called Identity Europa. And in the call, you can hear Mosley very directly talking about his goals um, for the effort. The purpose of this is to gain sympathy for, you know, pro-white advocacy. So the idea of, like, basically being edgy for edgy's sake is just not something that you need to do. Honestly, like, going up to, like, MSNBC and then them interviewing you and you saying something is, like, yeah, I actually think that we should kill every non-white on the planet. Like, again, I don't necessarily, like, you know, have an issue with listening to that on a podcast or whatever. Um, but if you are going to do something like that, like, just for the sake, like, even if it's your true belief, like, that's not the objective of this rally. What they wanted to do here was advocate for a narrative that portrayed their cause in a flattering light. But, you know, in this case, that cause was white supremacy. How did they think they could rebrand white supremacy into something more palatable to the mainstream? They expended a lot of effort making sure that they were putting on a really positive face for the cameras. Organizers said that KKK members would be turned away at the door if they showed up in their robe, their full robe and white hoods. They didn't say that KKK members were not welcome, but they did say they should not be wearing those obvious signs of the Klan. The second strategy, and I think this one is really crucial, was that they really wanted to draw a contrast between themselves and the counter-protesters. They were really obsessed with Antifa. The word Antifa appeared in these chat logs just over 700 times, and that's about the same frequency as the word white appeared. So they talked about Antifa constantly. And they believed that if Antifa responded to their peaceful protest with violence, the public looking on from the sidelines would naturally see them as the more reasonable party. 
At the August Charlottesville rally where things did get out of control, they were chanting blood and soil and you will not replace us. How does that mesh with the idea of them trying to play their white nationalism low-key? There was a sense from the top that they were, they were really trying to push this friendly face onto this ideology. But at the same time, like, when you get all of these people there and they get all riled up and they get all excited, it's really hard for them to keep some of those uh, more controversial elements of their ideology obscured. You could see that on the chat, which was still going throughout the rally. You would see people talking about, like, just expressing disappointment that there were Nazi flags and Roman salutes. If they were so concerned about being named as responsible for violence, how did they react when one of the participants drove a car through a crowd of counter-protesters? People immediately started making jokes and turning the attack into memes that were mocking the people who were injured or killed. But the car attack meant that this entire event was a failure. They really wanted to be seen as the good guys here. And since the information about Fields came out pretty quickly, that he had Nazi sympathies and was a Trump supporter, you know, it's very hard to be seen as the good guys when your side is murdering innocent people. How does all of this connect to what we saw in the Bay Area protests a couple weeks later? The main through line connecting what happened in Charlottesville and what happened in the Bay Area, at least to my eyes, is this concept of provocation. Their goal was to get a lot of counter-protesters out there, and hopefully those counter-protesters would, you know, embarrass themselves in the light of the, to the public at large, just by throwing punches and fighting and looking unhinged. That's Reveal's Aaron Sankin. I want to bring Will Carlos back into the conversation. Now, Will, we're going to hear from the guy who organized one of the right-wing rallies in the Bay Area that weekend. Uh, Tell me about him. Yeah, his name is Joey Gibson, and he lives in Vancouver, Washington, and he's really hard to categorize. He identifies as a Japanese-American. He says he's just a free speech advocate. And he founded a group called Patriot Prayer, which has been organizing rallies, mainly on the West Coast, but in other places too. Uh, These rallies have often gotten violent. They sometimes have white supremacists and other racists showing up. So he's kind of gotten in with a bad crowd, although he says he's not a white supremacist himself. Uh, he's He's got a background of being, I guess, He's an agitator. I mean, he gets out there and he kind of gets in people's faces and and pokes them with a stick. And that's exactly what he was trying to do in San Francisco. Yeah, Will, you also found out that Joey was one of the people on that Antifa hit list we heard about earlier. Now, I was there when Joey showed up at the rally in Berkeley. He's a 33-year-old guy with a shaved head and a trim beard. He says he went there holding up his hands to show he didn't want trouble. But to me, his body language was really aggressive. And it seemed like he was trying to rile up the left-wing protesters and get them to come after him. And that's exactly what happened. People started chasing him. Someone pepper sprayed him. He did eventually make it to a line of police officers for safety. Now, I spoke to him about that recently and asked him what was going through his mind at that time. I was scared. I was extremely afraid. You know what I mean? I knew we were going to take a beating. Why would you go over there if you knew you were going to get beat? I can't understand that unless you specifically wanted to get beat. It was to expose them for who they are. So your job then was to get them to take the bait and go after you. They could have made the right decision and not attack us. But yeah, it was up. We left it up to them. So you want them to look you, you want them to look bad. That's your goal. I want them to look how they really are, how they really feel on the inside. This is America. We have that right to be able to walk in there, especially with our hands up, and to not get assaulted. You know, we have a reporter here that's been doing some looking into all of this stuff with the far right and so forth. His name is Aaron Sankin, and he has a story about Charlottesville that the Unite the Right organizer, Jason Kessler, urged people to help bait Antifa into attacking the Proud Boys. How is that different from you trying to bait Antifa? You have to understand, Unite the Right is a justification to team up with extremists. 
That's totally different from what I'm doing. I'm trying to help justify people for moderates to come together. But Joey, you're using the exact same tactics as the white supremacists are using because they want to make Antifa look bad and you want to make Antifa look bad. Was that wrong of me, though, to want to make Antifa look bad, but not look bad in a way where it's a lie? I just want them to be exposed. Do you think Antifa is as bad as white supremacists? Yes. Not as a whole, but you can't fight hate with hate. You can't do it. And so when you have a bunch of hateful people, white supremacists, Antifa, they're extremists and they're just as bad. And they're, um, I think they're just as much of a threat to this nation. If you look at the numbers of fatalities within this country, white supremacists by far have killed way more people than anybody in Antifa has. Like, I don't think Antifa has a, a number count. Why does it have to be one or the other? Aren't they both bad? Do you think it's shocking that people come out to oppose Nazis and white supremacists? Uh, being a Nazi used to be a bad thing that everybody could agree on, like, it's bad. Yeah, oppose them. But people are using that, they're using that term Nazi so much that they're diluting it. And you know what I mean? That's the biggest problem. Go fight Nazis, fight real Nazis, fight racist, white supremacists, whatever. Go do your thing. But stop labeling everyone as white supremacists. Stop labeling everyone as Nazis. Like, it's, it's crazy. It's insane right now. But the problem is that so many people on the far right are associating with people who are Nazis, people who are against gays, who are against Muslims, who are against Jews, who are against African-Americans. So it's really hard to say that, you know, I'm going to march with this far right group that believe all these things and think that people aren't going to lump you in with those with those individuals. We have video footage of you at, uh, at a rally in Oregon where I guess you're doing security for these preachers. For your sin. Your sin of homosexuality. Your sin of being a transgender. Who are screaming at people about how they're going to go to hell because they're gay. Yeah, and that was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. Because I, not only do I not believe that, I don't believe gay people are, are better or less loved by God than straight people. So why'd you do it? Because they had done, uh, okay, I'll tell you why I did it. Here's what my justification was. So they had been there for me in the past in terms of um, trying to keep me safe in some really scary situations. And um, it, was, it was like a free speech thing. Do you understand how seeing a video like that could shape an opinion about who you are? Absolutely, 100%. Let me ask you this. Um, if I was to hold a rally in downtown Berkeley, I would not be attracting white supremacists to come to my rally. But how do you know that? Because I don't align with white supremacists. But either do I. But the white supremacists are coming to your rallies and supporting you. That's the point I'm trying to get to. Because there must be something in your message that they feel connects with what they believe. I don't think so. I think that they're, the thing that they're attracted to is, number one, people constantly say I'm racist and I'm a white supremacist. That's one problem. Okay, that does not help me. But the other thing, too, is, is it's, it's hatred for the left. So here, here's the thing, though, is that I think when the Antifa or when people on the left look at your movement, they see your association with Kyle Chapman. He is kind of the poster boy for that movement, that violent you know, white supremacist side of, of the movement. Whether you call it the white genocide or the war on whites, it's essentially the same thing. It's, it's a war on Western civilization. He advocates violence against Antifa. And so when they see your association with these things, of course people are going to say, well, if you're associated with it, then you must be a part of it. Kyle Chapman is probably one of the most misunderstood people. He's not, he's not a white supremacist. Um, he's not even, I mean, you can talk to him, but I, I don't even, he's not even a white nationalist. He is concerned about the way that whites are being treated. Okay. In this country right now, culturally, I mean, it's a fact, like, like I, I'm not, I'm not a person that's going to run around and say the whites are victims. Okay. I don't, I don't believe that, but it's, I mean, whites have to pay more than blacks to go to college. You know what I mean? There's, there's a huge problem with the way whites are being treated. Wait, hold on, hold on, hold on, wait, 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 hold on, <laughs> hold on. Whites have to pay more than blacks to go to college? Yeah. That's, that's totally untrue. It's tuition in state colleges. Yes, it is. It's totally true. That's totally untrue. Can I tell you why I know that that's untrue? Why? 
because like I, I have a child that's black and I have a child that's white and they're both going to be paying the same thing. Like I know that for a fact. So they can't be, it, that's just not true. And I don't have a child that's biracial. I have a child that's white. So I know for a fact that black people and white people are paying the same things. No, not in state colleges. I'm telling you in state colleges, Please l- listen to me, man. Like, uh, uh, Joe, I had to pay more because I'm Asian. Joe, <laughs> I'm telling you, Joe, Asians pay the most. Joe, I'm telling you, my friend, that's not true. Well, why don't we? There's no point arguing about it. Just look it up. Just no, I don't, do, do some research on it. And I'm not going to argue with you. I'm not going to argue with you about it because I'm telling you the facts. And you are perpetuating something that isn't true. It's built on a myth that perpetuates the idea that white people are wholesale victims in the United States. I am telling you as somebody like I'm 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 a reporter but I'm also uh, a parent of a black and white child that both of those children will be paying the same thing when they go to state college because my daughter is in state college now and my son is getting ready to go to state college. So I know this for a fact. I've I've looked at it. I'm paying this. So I know for a fact. And I know for a fact that this is how it works throughout the entire United States. Maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. And I have to do the research. But, you know, I have and maybe I was completely wrong. But, I mean, there's no point arguing it. I'm just saying that. Joey, I just keep going back to I just keep going back to the idea that if we don't figure out how to back away from this cliff that we're on right now, we're all going to go over. Yeah both sides continue to push and push and push each other until the point when we get to that cliff, you're going to push each other off the cliff and the country's going to go with you. That's, I know, it's a legitimate concern. You know, that's why I'm really, you know, there's, there's some major shifts going on. I know that that's hard for you to believe, but there's some major shifts going on in Patriot Prayer. And I, I don't disagree with you. I think you're right. Again, that was Joey Gibson, head of the right-wing group called Patriot Prayer. Our reporter, Will Carlos, is back with me. And, Will, it seems like that is a, um, I don't know, it, it feels like that resentment is an entry drug into white supremacy. Look, what Joey's saying is straight out of the white supremacist playbook in 2017. It's what the pinstripe Nazis are saying across the country. You don't hear in America these days very much that there's a big difference between the races or that, you know, black people uh, are somehow, you know, inferior to white people. Things have changed in terms of the way people talk about this. So what the white supremacists say now is they say that, you know, white people are under attack. They say that there's a white genocide going on and that white people are, you know, that they're facing all of these challenges from all different directions. So he's certainly spinning some of the lines of some of the people who've been showing up at his protests. So, Will, we've heard that the goal for the organizers in both rallies in Charlottesville and in Berkeley was to make the Antifa look bad. It seems like that's worked. Yeah, to a certain extent. I mean, I I think you have to differentiate between the protesters who were actually there. So the more moderate, you know, leftists who are kind of out there protesting. I don't think the Antifa have changed in their minds at all. In fact, I think they've probably, uh, I think those people probably have a more positive view of Antifa because they were there and they know that it was largely a peaceful rally with a few isolated kind of scuffles. But if you look at the way this played out in the, in the, broader media context across the country, then yeah, I mean, there's been a big backlash against Antifa. Not only is President Trump talking about them, you've got the mayor of Berkeley immediately saying Antifa should be labeled as a as a gang. You've got Nancy Pelosi saying that they must be condemned. There's certainly been a big kind of PR backlash. But at the end of the day, you know, these Antifa guys, they don't care. I mean, they're not going to stop doing what they're doing because the PR has been spun against them. They say they don't care, but it looks like law enforcement might be targeting them. Yeah, and that that is a concern. I mean, we've seen reports that the DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, is looking closely at these guys and has been for several months. And that's certainly at the top of the mind of a lot of people I'm talking to. I mean, let's put it this way. After my story came out on Antifa a couple of weeks ago, a few of the people who are quite happy to talk to me no longer answer my messages. That's Reveal's Will Carlos. He writes about extremist groups in our newsletter, The Hate Report, along with Aaron Sankin. You can subscribe to it by going to revealnews.org hate. So we've heard from the right-wing group and Antifa members. Next, 
I talked to the man who I protected from getting beat during the Berkeley protest. That's coming up on Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. We're ending today's show where we started, in the middle of a fight. Stop! 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 We're putting so much emphasis on this one fight because it's telling us a lot about what's happening around the country, and not just with protests, but with America itself. The attack happened at a relatively peaceful gathering in Berkeley. Five members of Antifa were beating and kicking a man. Now, I was there reporting on the rally. I saw the fight and jumped in, putting my body between the man and his attackers. I didn't know who he was. But as we've heard, members of Antifa did. They told us they had targeted him for a reason. His name is Keith Campbell. He is a known fascist. He's been known not only to intimidate. He, we have screenshots of him uh, talking about knives. He encouraged people to come and fight. After the incident, people on social media said that I'd protected a white supremacist. So we called Keith up to find out who he was. I'm an artist. I'm a writer, amateur photographer. Um, I spend a lot of time writing, and, and that's where I feel most at home. Keith is 54. He lives in the Bay Area with his family and likes to wear American flag T-shirts. He says he's a journalist for conservative websites, but Antifa members accuse him of using his camera to dox people. Doxing is when someone posts private information about you online, often with photos or videos. At the rally, Keith had his camera out and was filming the protest when he was attacked. You know, I think on the first hit to the head... I realized that I was in serious trouble, but I think even as they were as they were pummeling me and I was going down, like it was going through my head, it's like, I can't believe, I can't believe this is actually happening to me. I mean, I knew, I knew there was a risk. And, you know, then later seeing, seeing the video. Stop, stop, stop. Of what you did. And I just, I couldn't believe it. You know, I, you didn't know who I was. Um, for all, you know, for all I knew, you might have figured I was a, a Nazi or an alt writer or something, because that's kind of how we're painted in the, in the media. And, but, But you still did that. I owe you my life. Keith, I'll be honest with you, buddy. Um, You know, I've been looking at your Twitter uh, feed, and there's a lot of things that I'm uncomfortable with. I actually interviewed uh, some Antifa people um, who were at the rally. The, The person I spoke to, he says that you are on a hit list. I know. That they have a group of targets that they are going after. I know. And, and so their rationale for going after you is because they say that when you go to these rallies, you are there to primarily dox them, that you are there to tell people who they are, put all their information out. And, you know, a lot of things that I've seen online have said that for many months now, you've been harassing uh, a lot of the uh, people who are in the Antifa movement. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, what your thoughts are about that? Yeah, sure. Um, in regards to, you know, the whole, the doxing thing, yeah, I know people are, are saying that I would dox him. And I've, I've never tried to, to unmask any Antifa. And I, you know, I would never try to unmask any Antifa. Do you think that the Antifa are on par with the white supremacists? Not as a whole, no. But I think there are people on the far left are probably equally as bad as the people on the far right. 
But I don't think that's the largest amount of, people, of them. No, on I'm, either I, side. I guess what I'm saying is the moral equivalency, right? Like, do you think that white supremacy and people like Richard Spencer and uh, the the people that came out in Charlottesville, do you think that they equate with the Antifa? Because the Antifa primarily has risen to fight white supremacy. And white supremacy, you know, we can look at the model of Germany when Nazis were in power, you know, what that looks like. Millions of people yeah. die. And so the Antifa came, has come about to fight against that. So I guess my question is, is do you think those two things are equal? No. You know, I was concerned when um, Trump, when it looked like Trump might get first elected, that um, a lot of bad people on the far right would come out of the woodwork and seek legitimacy or get legitimacy. And that kind of seems to have happened. Do you think the work that you've been doing, though, has 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 helped them? I mean, it's, it seems to be that you're supporting them. Certainly not my intention to support anybody on the far right, No. I know there's people have been there when I, you know, I've been filming. There's obviously, you know, Charlottesville. Um, when you have large groups of people that gather, people are going to get in. And I think it's important that they be, that cancer be excised out of the movement. But you're adding to it. I mean, I think if Richard Spencer was following you, all the tweets that you've put out, he would like. He would, he would click that little button with the heart and say, there we go, I'm good. He might until he found out what I really believed, that I completely disagree with him. But how would he know what you really believe because everything you put out lines up with he, what he believes? What, I, what I'm trying to get at, Keith, is, 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 is that we live in this culture where, um, where maybe there is a disconnect between the things that we put out in the world and who we actually are, but that disconnect has consequences. Yeah. You're right. I'm looking at a tweet that you said, Hey, Berkeley Antifa, you effing pussies. Accept the challenge. You're no good with your fists anyway. Uh, that was July 13th. On August 19th, this is before the event that happened, you got, uh, why don't you pussies come out to Berkeley and we'll talk about that. Um, all of those statements are provocation. You're, you're pushing, you're pushing, you're pushing. I, I don't think it's a, a, a long jump for me to go from reading these statements to seeing what happened to thinking that you went out there to stir it up. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know what to say. Um, I know I obviously said that stuff i've in never the tweets that you have here i've got a, a a bunch of them of you saying you know get the f out of america muslims or renounce uh or renounce islam uh not my country if you follow islam you don't belong in the u.s uh that effing religion is a cancer to the world and has no place in the west if you follow islam you need to go where it's practiced not in the usa so all of those things that you're saying there feed into the bigger ideas that Richard Spencer is pushing of a white ethnostate. And so do you understand what I'm saying? Like how those two things play yeah. together? No, I, no, I, I totally get it. And I don't, you know, I don't, I don't think that, I think a, a white ethnostate would be horrible. And I don't think that people should be segregated at all. And it, it let me, let of, me ask you this. Um, you're, you're a member of the Oath Keepers and, and, you know, the Oath Keepers, uh, as an organization, they say that they're really, like, all about the Constitution. The reason why I bring that up, because the First Amendment of the Constitution guarantees the freedom of religion. You know, so the part that I am uh, unsure of with you is that if you're an Oath Keeper, you believe in the Constitution, you believe in the freedom of speech. That's, that's a really important thing for you, correct? The, the freedom of speech. Yes. And so, therefore... I'm curious if you believe in the First Amendment, the part where it talks about the guarantee of freedom of religion, um, because you don't get to pick and choose if that's the case. You don't get to say like, oh, it's freedom of religion for people who are of Christian denomination. That's not in the document. You don't get to say like, oh, it's freedom of religion for everybody except Islam. 
um, that's not in the document. You're right. Do you do you have any regrets about that? Yeah, I do. I have. I have. Uh, yeah, I have a lot of regrets about um, you know things I've, I've said and and I mean who who hasn't said stuff and later realized that they might have been wrong or at least shouldn't have said that or you know I think that's why it's good to talk to people who don't hold your beliefs so you either learn that maybe your beliefs are correct and it strengthens you or you learn that you're wrong that you maybe you need to change or pivot and re-examine re-examine the beliefs that you have or the things that you value and i'm you know i'm not i'm not above changing or you know admitting i made mistakes and and looking at things and and looking at where i can you know change to become a you know, a better or different person. Let me um, just say to you, man, that um, that when I saw you on that ground, it wasn't, the first thing that didn't come to my mind was that, oh, there's a white guy on the ground and he may be an alt-writer, he may be a, uh, he may be somebody that doesn't want me in this country. Um, the first thing that I saw was a fellow American on the ground and he needed help. And that's why I went and helped you, um, because you are a human being, and and I value your humanity. Um, and I would say that when I look at the the statements that you've made, and if I did the same thing, if I use the exact same reasoning, you might not be here today. I think you're right. Can you change, Keith? Yeah. Can you change the way you think and look at things? Of course, as long as I'm alive, yes, of course. Keith, I know uh, that this was not an easy conversation to have, and I really appreciate you um, taking the time out to talk. I knew it wouldn't be. I knew it wouldn't be an easy one, so it's all right. I knew. Keith Campbell told me he could change. Looking at his Twitter feed, he seems to have dialed back his anti-Islamic rhetoric, but he continues to agitate Antifa, calling them brainless, murderous thugs. Joey Gibson of Patriot Prayer told me there was a new direction for his organization, but he's still holding rallies where he says his goal is to make Antifa turn violent and look bad. As for Dominic, he didn't see any problems with his methods, and he told me he has no regrets. We had a whole team of reporters and producers working on today's show. Will Carlos, Trey Bundy, Aaron Sankin, Emily Harris, Stan Alcorn, Mawenda Hasey, Harriet Rowan, Scott Pham, Rachel DeLeon, Catherine Miskowski, Patrick Michaels, Eric Segarra, Emmanuel Martinez, Aubrey Aiden Bowie, and Kate Tellerico. They had help from editors Andy Donahue, Ziva Brandstetter, and Michael Corey. Michael Montgomery was our lead producer this week. Our lead sound designer and engineer is Jim Briggs. He had help from Catherine Raimondo and Kat Shuknit. Additional audio from Krista Rose. Our head of studio is Krista Scharfenberg. Amy Powell's our editor-in-chief. Suzanne Reber is our executive editor, and our executive producer is Kevin Sullivan. Our theme music is by Camarado, Lightning. Support for Reveals provided by the Reva and David Logan Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation. Reveal is a co-production of the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. I'm Al Letson, And remember, there is always more to the story.